Welcome back to another episode of A Gift from Adversity. My name is Jill Love. I'm your host. Thank you very much for tuning in. Today we're recording episode 112 and I'm very grateful. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to introduce my book, which is the same title as this podcast. It's called A Gift from Adversity, and it's available on Amazon. And if you type out Gift from Adversity by Jury Love, J-U-R-I, Love, you see it right there. And then the subtitle of the book is called Overcoming Sexual Abuse, Domestic Violence, Bullying, and Homelessness. I published this book in 2020, and I got a lot of messages from all over the world, people sharing their adversities. And I felt really compelled to start this podcast last year, not knowing how many guests are going to come. And I started last year. Now it's 112 episodes. So I'm very grateful to have Nathan today. Thank you so much, Nathan, for coming to A Gift from Adversity today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yes. Um, so Nathan, can you tell our audience your name, where you're coming in from, and what you do for work, and if you have any website or social media you can promote? Okay. Uh, so my name is Nathan Gutierrez. Um, I live in California, Southern California, where it's very hot right now. Um, I am. I was born with spina bifida. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit later, but that's a birth defect. Um, I currently work uh, in municipal government, and so I'm the ADA coordinator for my community. Uh, basically, what I do is I look for um, accessibility issues in the community, and then I answer any questions, um, address any concerns that anybody may have may have in the community, and then I uh, also send them resources that they can access either in the city or online or whatever the case may be. I'm also a professional speaker. Um, I've done two TED talk, two TEDx talks, uh, and then I'm also a certified life coach uh, as well. What is your social media website that people can find more about you? Yeah, my website is Wheel Life Coaching. Uh, wheel is in wheelchair, uh, and there's two L's, so W H E E L L I F E Coaching.com. Uh, and then I'm also on Instagram, uh, and my handle is at wheellife underscore coaching. Again, that's at wheellife underscore coaching, and it's two L's. Well, thank you so much, Nathan. So let's dive into our first question, which is the adversity. So can you tell our audience, what was your adversity? Yeah, that's a good question. I've, I've had a couple and they are related. Uh, so I was born with a physical disability called spina bifida and it was, and I believe still is, one of, if not the most common birth defect in the world. Um, just to give you the, the quick version as to what it is, uh, I was born with a hole in my back uh, at the L1 level on my spine. And so the nerves in that area were damaged. And in my case, it's, a con it's considered a severe case uh, because I am in a wheelchair. I don't walk. I'm not able to walk unless I was in full body braces, uh, which I have done in my life. And, you know, we can talk about that later. Um, but I am in a wheelchair full time. Uh, my other adversity didn't occur until I was about 23 years old, where my kidneys failed unexpectedly. Um, I always knew my kidneys were not the greatest. Uh, I always had a weakness of, of sorts in them. My doctors were always aware of it. 
but I got a call one day uh, after seeing the doctor and they said, hey, your kidneys are, are gone um, and you're going to have to start dialysis. So what that did is that took me on a three-year journey of going on dialysis three days a week for three hours of treatment uh, and I had to find a transplant. So that was that was my biggest journey, uh, midlife, I guess you could say. Not really my midlife, but uh, it, it was something that was certainly unexpected, but it is tied into my disability. Um, not something that all people with spina bifida deal with, uh, but in my case, it, it was something that did come up. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, let's dissect into our first um, portion of it when you uh, were born. Um, so how was your parents um, reacting to it? How was, I don't know if you remember any conversation that your parents were having with the doctors or like, you know, maybe you were not that involved. Do you remember any of the childhood memory? Yeah. So in terms of my spina bifida, it, it happened in utero. So I don't remember that. Um, but my, my mom had no idea that I was going to be born with a disability until the day I was born. So there, back then, you know, I'm 40 years old. So back in the early 80s, they didn't have any tests or the tests were very limited, I should say, uh, in terms of diagnosing uh, that type of disability. And so when I came out, uh, when I was born, uh, you know, in most cases, babies are kicking and screaming and that kind of thing. And, and I was screaming, uh, but I wasn't kicking. And so the doctors flipped me over onto my stomach, and that's when they um, saw the exposed hole in my back, in my spine. Uh, it was about the size of a quarter quarter dollar, if you know about that size, a little bit, a little bit bigger than a quarter. And, um, and so they, they were actually able to see my spinal column, and then they saw a few of the nerves in that area were damaged. Uh, they were completely exposed to the air. So I was rushed into emergency surgery. Uh, they had to close my back up. Uh, and then I also had a, an enlarged head uh, due to a condition called hydrocephalus, uh, which basically means water on the brain. And that is often associated with spina bifida. Um, and so what they had to do uh, down the road, I think I was about three months old, they had to put a shunt in my head to drain the fluid out of my brain. Uh, and sometimes that actually causes brain damage when you have the fluid on the brain. And fortunately for me, in my case, that wasn't the case. Um, but it was something that, you know, we had to deal with. So that was what happened the day I was born. Uh, I, and I'm the first of two children. So, you know, imagine having a, a child. And, and usually with that, especially your first, comes with, uh, you know, a lot of nerves, a lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty, but also a lot of excitement. And unfortunately, because of my situation, my parents were robbed of, of the excitement. Uh, you know, of course, they were glad to have me. But you know, my birth was not exactly a day of rejoicing simply because I went into this, you know, emergency, it went into this emergency situation and I was pulled away from my mom, you know, the moment I was born and she didn't know what was going on. And, and uh, from what I was told later on years down the road was that the doctors told my mom that, uh, you know, I'd have no quality of life. I'd never walk, I'd never talk, uh, and they might as well put me in a home because I would never survive in this world. So here I am 40 years later, and uh, glad the doctors were wrong about that. So, uh, but again, that was the introduction to my life. 
and uh, you know certainly unexpected, but in a lot of ways, I think you know as as your podcast name indicates, I think it was a gift in a lot of ways, uh, both for me and for my family. Thank you. So we'll save the gift and then tools part for that uh, for the for the later on the podcast. But let's talk about you growing up, and thank you so much for sharing the birth um, experience and. Um, when you are growing up, do you recall any bullying or teasing, like going to school, um, socialization? Like, do you have any memories of those? Uh, no, it, it didn't occur, really. Um, so when I was young, um, I would say preschool, I was in a Head Start program. So I was in a, a class uh, with other disabled kids and, and you know, I, I barely remember them. But um, so I was in special education, so to speak, until about the second grade. And then in second grade, uh, I was fully mainstreamed into uh, regular education. Uh, actually, in first grade, if you go a year earlier, I was kind of half day in special education and in regular edu education. And then starting in second grade, I was full time mainstream. But, um, you know, well, the kids, especially back in grade school, they treated me just fine. Uh, you know, they certainly had a lot of curiosity, a lot of questions. Being, you know, six, seven years old, they didn't really know much about disabilities or I was probably the first person in a wheelchair that I'd ever met other than maybe grandma and grandpa, you know, and um, but I was their age. And so they always treated me for the most part like I was just another kid on the playground. I just had the wheelchair. Um, things got a little bit different in junior high, uh, you know. The social the socialization and in, in junior high that's when it becomes a little more complicated. Uh, that's when teens start rebelling and you know being a teen is difficult enough. And in having my situation, being in a wheelchair, is the is the added challenge. Um, and so that's when things started to change for me socially, academically, uh, and I really struggled a lot. You know, I still had a few friends, but everybody started going their own way at that time. Uh, trying to figure out their own identity, who they were, what their likes and dislikes were, things of that nature. Um, and then in high school, I think it it happened again. Uh, you know, I wasn't necessarily bullied or anything. I, I really wasn't. I never had that experience, thankfully, because I know a lot of people do go through that experience, disabled or not. Uh, but oftentimes I found that I was excluded or I was ignored. And not by everybody, but, you know, certain groups that Maybe I wanted to, to get into, you know, the, the athletes group because I, I love sports. I just grew up watching sports. The athletes, the popular kids, things like that. Um, I was excluded from it. And again, they weren't mean to me. They just didn't have anything to do with me. They'd walk by and they, you know, they, they might say hi if I was lucky. Um, but oftentimes they just walked by without giving me a second glance, you know, something like that. And then it wasn't really until college when, you know, people don't care at that point because you're an adult and everybody's trying to figure out again who they are, what direction they want to take their life. And there really aren't those clicks like there were in junior high and high school. So I really didn't, you know, have, I think, more of an interaction with peers until I was in college. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I just covered the story of um, Special Olympics Field Day 
that's held uh, school district-wide, and also um, unified basketball game and in the middle school and high school in our school district for the first time. And they were like really excited. And I interviewed, I remember interviewing a couple parents. They were crying, seeing their child being included in the sports with their wheelchairs and other disabilities. And um, I know it's changing in 2023, but then back then, were there any unified track, unified sports sort of things at all? Not organized, really, um, at least in the schools. There, I, I do recall one time, I think I was in sixth grade, where my PE teacher uh, gathered a few wheelchairs, just some basic hospital chairs. They weren't anything fancy. Uh, and then he brought them to the, the RPE class. And so some of the kids had an opportunity to jump in the chairs and wheel around and got to have some limited experience, uh, limited exposure rather, on what it was like uh, for me. And then, you know, they'd play basketball or they'd do an obstacle course or something like that. But that was really about the extent of it uh, in terms of, you know, what was offered in school. I would still go to regular physical education classes and they would have me participate in the ways that I was able to participate. But, you know, sometimes it was pretty limiting and, and sometimes I'd have to be on the sidelines or I would have to be given another activity to do that would count towards the physical education component. Um, but there wasn't anything really like there is now, which I think is great. I think we're making progress in those areas. Um, in terms of other activities outside of the school, I was involved in a in an, in an, in an adaptive baseball program maybe for two years. That sounds about right. And I was probably eight, nine years old. Um, and that was put together by a couple of parents in the community who wanted their disabled son to have a team to call his own. And so there were a bunch of us involved in that. And that was fun. It, it was basic, but it was fun. Um, and so really that was my first exposure in terms of activity that was outside of the school, um, but involved other kids my age. The other thing that I was involved in even before that was more geared towards adults and it was a wheelchair basketball team. And I got started with them when I was about six. Uh, and I was involved with them from about six to 25 or so. So I was involved for you know, over 20 years. Um, but, I, you know, I started that at six years old, and, and those individuals were much older than me in most cases. Uh, if I recall, the one who was closest to my age but older, he was still about eight years older than me. And then, um, but I, I grew up with them, and they were the ones who taught me how to, you know, become an independent person in a wheelchair uh, with a disability. So I really learned a lot from them, but there weren't really the opportunities that there are now. But it all started with those those types of programs. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I have a question about speech part of it. That doctor diagnosed you, uh, told you, told your mom that you would never speak or maybe live and stuff. How did you like overcome that? Like, what what was your problem? Did you have speech delays? Like pathologist? Like, you know, what happened? No, the, the comment was more generic at birth in that because my because of the disability, 
the chances of me succeeding in life were slim, according to the doctor. And so he was basically trying to prepare my parents. I, I think he was trying to scare them, really, looking back. But he was trying to give them a, a real grim outlook on what my life could be. And if they didn't feel like they could handle that, that that moment would have been an opportunity for them to get out of that and give me up for adoption or what, you know, whatever they wanted to do. That way they wouldn't have to deal with my situation, so to speak. And it was truly unfortunate because I know a lot of parents, you know, probably still get exposed to those kinds of things. And, you know, it makes me sad because I think a lot of those kids could have the, the potential to grow up and be successful. Now to what level, I don't know. And I think that really depends on the individual that depends on the disability because each case is different, but, um, you know, if you don't, if you don't give the child an opportunity, then how will you know? It's, um, a lot of conversations, um, around, you know, biases and then disabilities and DEI, um, not just the race, but, you know, all sorts of inclusivity is really key to, um, a lot of social settings and especially after the pandemic, it's definitely more there. But um, just to sh um, shed a light of the situation, for instance, in Japan, that if you have disabled kids, they try to hide it as much as possible so they don't come out to the society. We don't have as much as barrier-free um, facilities nor public access like this country. Like in Japan, is really, really, really... Um, not adopted uh, at all much. Um, so I just want to also mention that um, I wrote an article a couple months ago where the town of Attleboro in southern Massachusetts, all the leadership came and actually experienced being in, on a wheelchair. So this uh, company provided maybe 30 wheelchairs and then all the leaderships, um, including the architect, they got on a wheelchair. And then I heard some of the school, architect school, it's a requirement for them to live in a wheelchair for one week so they can um, design the architect um, in the future that is adoptable. So I, I think there is more of the conversation, but I know you're from California. And then back then, is there anything in California that you think it's need to be done um, or like you know, that you think it's still a problem? Yeah, and I wouldn't necessarily say it's California. Um, I will say that California, I think, is probably ahead of the curve in a lot of ways compared to other states. I have family and, and friends in other states, and it doesn't seem like you know some of these other states are really taking taking the time to ensure accessibility maybe beyond the minimum requirements of the Americans with Disabilities Act or the ADA. Uh, because that is a federal law, so they aren't required to have, you know, minimum standards. But I think California does a better job of that. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of things in, in California that we're probably behind on and we don't do as well. Um, that's another conversation. But in terms of ADA, I think California does a pretty good job of that. Of course, there's always room for improvement. Um, I think that you know, society as a whole, I think we need to do a better job of providing more opportunities for people with disabilities. And that goes from not just 
in terms of raising them and putting them in academics, um, but also providing social opportunities for them. Uh, and then also providing those same opportunities for parents to help them, you know, navigate a lot of these challenges. Uh, and again, there, there are many wonderful nonprofit organizations and, uh, and I'm involved with a few of them, you know, in California that are, that are great. Um, but that, you know, there's only so much they can do. And I think it really takes a more of a cohesive, uh, you know, partnership between the, uh, between the nonprofit organizations, local, uh, state and, and national governments to get a lot of these objectives solved. You know, but if you have only you know a couple of local organizations trying to work on these things, it, it does continue to be a challenge. And they do they do good work, they make great strides, but again, those resources are pretty limited at the local level. And especially if we're talking about nonprofits who are leading the charge, while they have great intention, it is a nonprofit organization that has very limited funding. Uh, that is trying to lead these charges, you know, to to create a more inclusive environment. Whereas I think if we have corporations, if we have governments uh, who are also part of it in in making the world more accessible and creating more opportunities for these families and individuals, then I think we'll make greater strides in at least in a shorter period of time. But again, that takes a lot of people to be willing and able to do it as well. Well, thank you so much, Nathan. Um, so I have a question about the mental health um, portion of it. When you're growing up and then being um, on a wheelchair and then um, having this um, maybe stigma between the kids who are not on a wheelchair or maybe not you know, ex- included and stuff, how was your mental health and mental stage that you can recall when you were growing up especially? Yeah. So again, when I was young and I was in grade school, I think it was fine. Um, I had a lot of friends who were either disabled or, or non-disabled. And so, you know, I had a group of, of people who supported me no matter what. Um, even even beyond that, and to this day, my family has been the, the cornerstone and the foundation for getting me through those hard times, uh, both my family and my faith. You know, I'm a, I'm a Christian and and I, I proudly say that to everybody. And if people don't agree with that, that's okay. I, I don't take offense to that. But my faith is first and foremost, number one. Uh, very close number two is my family. Um, I have a younger sister. I have two parents. Uh, my parents divorced when I was uh, about nine years old. Uh, but I have a great relationship with both of them. Uh, I now have a brother-in-law. And, and about a month ago, month and a half ago, uh, we welcomed uh, my first nephew in the family. So... You know, I have a good foundation, uh, and my brother-in-law, I should mention my brother-in-law too. So I have a really good foundation of family who have always been there to support me. And I I know that, you know, in some cases that's not, that's not true for certain, you know, certain individuals. And and I know I'm fortunate in that area and I, I don't take that for granted at all. But, you know, going through my teen years, it was certainly a challenge. Um, I dealt with a lot of anger. I dealt with a lot of depression. And it really, really impacted me negatively for a long time. And it impacted me negatively for much longer than it should have. And I'll tell you, it wasn't until I was in my early to mid-20s, at least, if not longer, when I started to pull myself out of that. 
um, that, you know, even today, you know, at 40, I still have bad days. They, they're not as frequent and they don't last as long uh, because I, you know, I have the emotional maturity and, and the life experience to help me through that. Again, along with my, my foundation, with my family and my faith and all of that. But when you're 13, 14, 15 years old, I mean, it's, it's rough. It's rough being a teenager in general, but then if you add the disability on top of it, you deal with the, the social stigmas, you deal with the social challenges, people are driving, people are dating, you know, things that most teens go through, you know, I was excluded from a lot of that. And so I did deal with a lot of anger, a lot of loneliness, a lot of depression. Um, it was, it was rough. It was rough for a long time. And I'm just so thankful that my family were really there to help me through all of that. And again, I don't take it for granted. And, uh, I, and I know that a lot of people out there, maybe some who are even watching, they don't, they don't have that. Or, um, you know, if there are parents or siblings, maybe they haven't considered that their impact of not being there, you know, doesn't matter. It really does. It really makes a difference. And, uh, if anybody's watching and you're there and you're, you are being supportive, then you have no idea you know, how much that means to your family members and your friends, you know, who are dealing with disabilities. Uh, and you're a really big reason why they're able to get through what they get through every day. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for sharing and then being very open and vulnerable about how you felt when you were, especially a teenager, obviously, like, you know, you mentioned dating and then you mentioned about driving cars and that's such an exciting time for like 16 years old and then be able to drive by themselves and then um, not being included in sports, obviously, but um, the mental health stage, especially, um, I'm not sure how old you are, but like in my era, like in the 80s, there was no talk whatsoever about the mental health at school or society and then if you go seek a counselor like you're considered like you're done like you know you're crazy cuckoo and then some may lose a job you know and it's definitely changing but when you're growing up were there a lot of stigma if you were to like seek um counselors or maybe talk about mental health and you know depression and then the complex that you had no, not that I was aware of, at least. Um, you know, I did go through counseling quite a few times with, with a few different counselors at different periods of my life. You know, my parents, you know, divorcing, that was a big a big thing for me. So I had to seek some counseling for that when I was quite young uh, and in other situations as well throughout the years. But I never came across any opinions or situations that, you know, people thought that that was a negative stigma or anything like that and frankly even if i did i wouldn't have cared because if it helped me then that's all that matters that's very strong and i had a guest um actually two guests um who had experienced um the disability uh one is um Wayne Forrest from New Zealand, who had a rugby accident, and then he's been on wheelchair for the past 27 years. And then Steve Lovrace from Oklahoma, who had a tree accident, and then uh, got disabled, but he did a triathlon. But he mentioned, interestingly, about American Disability Act, which you're working on uh, with the municipal government now, that um, it was 1990 that was formed, but prior to that, there was no 
so not so much of uh, advocacy and protection towards the disability. And he had mentioned that, um, for instance, participating in triathlon as a disabled person, he had to hide all of that. But now they have a different category for it. So do you remember the change around that time? No, I don't, uh, to be honest. I was only seven years old when that you know, came to be in 1990. Um, I, you know, I do recall situations a year or two prior to that where I was in school and they didn't really have ramp access. And I remember that I'd have to be carried up or downstairs in my chair at school just because I didn't have the accessibility. Uh, and one time they actually dropped me at the school and I, I fell and I actually, I chipped a tooth. And uh, I, so I do remember that. Um, but in terms of overall accessibility, I think I was too young to remember most of it. Uh, but I do have an appreciation for those who really fought to make that happen. You know, and even before 1990, I will say, you know, that fight started in the 1960s. So that was long before the ADA uh, came to be. Uh, you know, if you if you do the research, you'll see that there were there were numerous people who went back to D.C. who did a sit in and and who really fought for disability advocacy and disability rights. Um, you know, so that was that was a couple of decades before the ADA came to be. So, you know, it, it had been a long time coming. Now, we've made while we've made great progress, does that mean that we don't have a ways to go? No, it certainly doesn't mean that. Um, we do have a ways to go. Uh, there's a lot that can still be improved. And uh, again, I think that goes back to helping people uh, by providing those, those outlets and those opportunities for them to be successful. Uh, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the opportunities may be there, but they may be hidden. They may not be as readily accessible or readily obvious uh, on how to access those resources. So, you know, while they're there, they're, they're kind of isolated in that people don't know that they exist. And if people don't know they exist or how to access them, it doesn't matter what's out there if people aren't able to, to you know, access them and know how to use them. Well, thank you so much uh, for your conversation and then shedding a light to this. Um, I have a um, story that I want to share. Um, so recently I wrote an article about brand new playground and it's $700,000, seven years project. And then when I interviewed uh, the leadership, they said it's ADA accessible. However, when actual uh, kid who were on a wheelchair uh, got there, it wasn't completely ADA accessible. And then we were talking about the gap, the leaderships, and then how they understand the standard of ADA. Um, American Disability Act versus the reality. I think it's kind of a gap. And I didn't realize that I got backlash about my article. Um, this is not true and stuff, but I didn't know, but because I just, you know, transcribed a court, you know, interview and then I put in a quotation mark even. So what do you make out of it? Oh, I, I know that it absolutely exists. So there's a difference between uh, accessible and compliant and usable. So, you know, one thing that I run into quite frequently is when I travel, uh, and anybody watching, you know, with a disability will certainly understand this. 
when you go into a hotel room that is supposed to be ADA compliant, uh, the place where I have the most challenge would be the restroom and the shower, uh, specifically the shower. So the while the showers are supposedly ADA compliant, and I would say in most, if not all cases, they are, and if, and if they're not, I would say that they're, it's probably minute, uh, but it's not like I carry a tape measure and, and measure you know, how far the seating is from the, the edge of the seat or, you know, whatever the other requirements are within the ADA. And I don't, I don't focus on that area specifically uh, with my knowledge, but I, I am aware of some of those requirements. Um, but again, you're, you're talking about, you know, building, building codes, building guidelines, and I'm, I'm not an engineer, uh, so I don't know those specifically, but there have been many times where I go into the room, they tell me it's ADA compliant, but then it's obvious that someone like me can't use it. Case in point, as an example, I'll go into um, a bathtub or a shower and I'll look at it and they'll have the bench seat at the back of the tub, but then the tub is you know four or five feet long and then they'll have the, the nozzle at the front of the tub. But the nozzle doesn't reach, even if it's a handheld nozzle, it doesn't reach the back of the shower and then they'll have the the uh, temperature control valve at the front of the shower too. So unless my arm is four or five feet long, I can't reach it from the bench seat, but that's still ADA compliant. So yes, it's ADA compliant, but it's not necessarily usable. So there are, as you call them, those gaps there. Uh, and those, those very much exist. Uh, and that is one example that I've come across in my life several times. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, that's, I think, um, one of the reasons why the city leaders uh, decided to do this uh, wheelchair experiment. And then um, and really understand even just a small ramp from here to here, um, like, you know, how can we make it, you know, difference and then including in next year's budget and stuff. So I think it's really important that people, especially decision makers and you know, when making a budget. Um, I think it's just so crucial. However, ADA is there, like you said, accessibility and usable, um, the standard in really can use it or not. That's a gap that we need to work on. True, and I agree. You know, working in municipal government, it's, it's challenging because you know, government will, will cover the minimum requirements in the ADA or any other guidelines that, you know, building codes and so on and so forth. So again, we're back to, you know, we meet the minimum standard in terms of accessibility, but, you know, we don't necessarily pull in a committee of people who, you know, we ask, does this work for you? And I think that presents some challenges um, in terms of, you know, does this work for people? On the other side of that argument, because I, you know, I've been on both sides of that, every individual is going to be different. So even if, let's say they called me and then they said, hey, you know, would this work for you? It might work for me. But then if they call in, you know, somebody else with a similar, maybe in a, even a completely different disability, um, you know, for instance, I, I use a manual chair and it's it's pretty compact. You know, I, I it's not real big. Um, 
but if you call in, so I might fit in some certain places, things like that. I might be able to use a ramp, but if you call somebody in with an electric chair, which are considerably bigger in most cases, not always, but, but a lot of cases, they may not be able to use the same thing that I do. So yes, it could be accessible uh, based upon the minimum standards, but you know, for me or for that other individual, it may work for one of us, but it may not work for both of us. So there are a bunch of nuances there. So I, I've come to understand both sides from a personal perspective. Yeah, I think it, it, we need to work on those things to make it more readily and widely accessible for people in general. On the other hand, it's nearly impossible, in my opinion, to make it accessible to everybody. You just can't, you just can't. I mean, it's, it's challenging. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for shedding light to these issues that I wouldn't understand. Um, but as a journalist that I've covered many stories, especially unified sports these days and Special Olympics, and then not just the kids side of it, but the parents perspective of it and, you know, the leadership perspective of it, this conversation is really not normalized much so i think it's very important that um i'm glad that you came to my podcast and then being very vulnerable and honest um about in regards to this issue thank you so much yeah thanks for having me i really appreciate being here yes so thank you um i let's talk about the tools this is my second question and my favorite question on my podcast so i always tell my guests and audience that a lot of times trauma survivor, myself, completely different um, adversity, but child sex abuse survivor, um, homelessness, bullying, domestic violence, um, people always say, okay, just forget and forgive and you forgive the perpetrator and you're fine and it doesn't work just like that. Um, it's not clear. So I definitely struggled like almost 30 years of my life and then you know, some of the things that worked, some of the things that didn't work. So this is my absolute favorite valuable part of the podcast. So Nathan, out of all the tools that you used, what are the tools that you use that really worked for you to overcome these adversities? Well, first and foremost would be my faith. So I, you know, I go to church and I do a lot of praying and I, you know, I grew up learning how to pray and, and really prayer is not difficult. It's just, it's just asking God uh, or a higher power, whatever you choose to call it, uh, you know, for assistance. And, you know, that, that has been the biggest saving grace for me, uh, without a doubt. Uh, without that, nothing else matters to me in anything, good, bad, or whatever, uh, without my faith. Secondly, and very close second would be my family. My family has been uh, always supportive in, you know, what I wanted to do, whatever I needed to do. That's not to say that they've always understood or that they've always had a great handle on on my challenges or, you know, what, what I was needing. So I always had to voice what those are. And um, even, you know, even today as an adult, you know, we may go somewhere and, and while they know that I have certain challenges in terms of, you know, accessing, you know, somewhere in public, you know, a restaurant or, you know, wherever we may be going, 
I'll point out to them still, well, I can't, I can't get in there because of this, or, you know, maybe we need to go around the back, or maybe we need to sit at this other table, or, or, you know, whatever the case may be. And so I have to point those things out. So it, it, the, the self-advocacy never ends. Just because you've, you've done it, you know, a few times or a few years in your life, it doesn't mean that that stops. It, it's going to be a lifelong thing. And you just, you just have to accept that. And, and I have, you know, and, and so I moved from self, um, self-governing, self-advocacy uh, to helping others. And that's why I, you know, I'm, I'm starting my business and I want to help other people figure that out for themselves too. And so when I coach people, it's not, well, here's, you know, here's exactly how you do it. Because even if it works for me, let's say you're one of my clients and I'm helping you through something, it may not work for you because you're a completely different person. So, you know, I, I try to design, you know, that the assistance to what would work for you as well. So I, it's important to tailor those things to the individual and their circumstances and, and their, their mindset, uh, their abilities, their disabilities, things of that nature. Uh, because again, we're all different, and it goes back to what I was saying earlier about uh, accessibility in different places. You know, if I go into a, a you know, bathroom in a hotel room, just because it works for me doesn't mean it's going to work for the next person. But we have to do the best we can with what we have, and that that's a little bit where I'm different than other people because people will, I think, sometimes carry it too far, in my opinion. And, you know, I've, I've gotten lashback on that, too, because, you know, people have said, well, maybe, you know, you don't care as much or you're not fighting as hard. And my response is always, no, I pick my battles. And this is not ever going to be resolved with a perfect scenario, a perfect answer. We have to get to a place where it's going to be as best of an answer as it's going to be. And then we need to learn how to adapt. The world isn't always going to adapt to us as much as we want to, as much as we hope. It, it's just not. And so we have to play both sides of it. We have to, yes, we have to advocate for some um, accessibility, some, some of those things that we need, you know, the essentials. But there's going to come a point where, you know, we've done everything we can do in terms of, of accessibility. Now, how are we as the individuals who are taking advantage of that accessibility? What are we doing on our part to make it work to the best of our ability? And that's that's the struggle. That's really the struggle. Um, but that's that's the nature of life. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. So my last question for you, Nathan, is a gift that came from your adversity. So what would you say a gift that came from your adversity? The gift has been that I've been able to help other people. Uh, you know, for a long time, I've been self-admitting that it was about me and I made it about me. And that, you know, when I, when I was on stage as a speaker, you know, years and years ago, I wanted the applause for me because, hey, I'm the one doing the work up there. I'm the one speaking. They should clap for me. And then one day I realized that it's not about me. It's about the message. It's about other people benefiting from it as well. Yeah, the applause is nice. It's nice when people come up to me and they say, hey, you know, you're, you're a big help. You're, 
you know, you're inspirational, but I, I don't look to be inspirational. I don't, I don't look for the applause. You know, I, I look for, has that made a difference in somebody else's life? And if it has, then it's been worth it. And I've done my job. If it hasn't, then I need to do more. And I think if we, if we all collectively take that mindset, and again, that doesn't mean people have to be on stage. They don't have to write a book like you. They don't have to have a podcast like you. But if if we all do something to help other people and to move the cause in a positive direction, then we'll get there. We'll get to where we need to be. It's it's going to take time. It's not it's not an overnight thing. But we all need to realize it's not you're not just doing it for you. You're doing it for the person next to you. You're doing it for the people you'll never meet. You know, there are people probably watching this now. I'll, I'll never meet. I'll never hear from. And that's okay. But even if, you know, sitting here and talking to you for almost an hour, even if there's one person out there who gets something positive out of it, isn't it worth having this interview? I think so. Well, thank you so much, Nathan, uh, for coming to a gift from university. My last request for you, if there's any, especially kids or teens out there who are struggling on being on wheelchair and then starting to feel a little bit depressed or different, uh, what is your biggest advice for them? I would say, well, a couple things. Number one, have faith. Have, have faith in something greater than you. And again, I'm not telling them to go to church. I'm not telling them to subscribe to a certain religion, but have faith. Secondly, find community. Find community with people who understand. And it may not be your family because sometimes family just, they don't get it. So, you know, we live in a world now that is more widely accessible to anybody. If you have a computer and a, a computer and a keyboard and a phone, you can achieve a lot of things in this world. That's all you need. It's not like the old days where you actually needed to go out and find these people. All you need to do is get on the search engine and type in support group for people with disabilities and something will come up. So yet find that community. Um, number three, make the effort to get out there in the world. Make the effort to self-advocate. Um, find a mentor. I would be glad to help people. I mean, that's that's what I do. That's why I started Wheel Life Coaching. Again, wheellifecoaching.com, two L's. Uh, and, you know, reach out to me. See if I can help. You know, figure out how to navigate some of these things that people may be struggling with. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Nathan, for coming to my podcast again. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And thank you, everyone, for tuning into another episode of Gift from Adversity. And more guests coming in, so stay tuned.